This week, we're answering your questions. We'll be talking about mature first-time buyers. Uh, we're probably a little bit too young to be your mum. Um, what to do when you can't afford what you need. How to choose a buyer's agent and how to find out sold prices when they're not published. Welcome to your first home buyer guide, the podcast for first home buyers who want to get it right. I'm Megan and that was Veronica. We're both buyer's agents and probably old enough to be your mums. But that's a good thing because between us, we've got over 40 years experience and we are going to share with you bucket loads of stories about avoidable mistakes. Together, we're going to make sure that you get unbiased and real information that you can rely on so you can get where you want to be without missing a step. Now, we've got loads of great tips for you in this episode. And if you'd like more useful tools, head over to the website, homebuyeracademy.com.au. There you'll find free checklists that you can download, a free mini course on how to price a property and our where to buy workshop for only $39. Priceless stuff, really. Bargain. But before we get into the interesting stuff in this week's episode, here's the boring bit, the disclaimer. You of course know that nothing in this podcast is to be taken as personal advice. We always recommend getting the advice of an expert in their field of expertise. Now we've done our very best to ensure that the content is correct at the time of recording, but things change. So check with the relevant government authority or your advisors to get the most up-to-date information. Today, we're answering your questions and thank you so much for sending them in. We love getting them. But before we get into that, what is your special house this week, Megan? Well, check this out. So I I simply looked for the most expensive house for sale. And this, even in what was, you know, a difficult kind of market, this is a home in Rome that was the priciest property in the world last year. $532 million. So not quite first home buyer's stock. And honestly, not my cup of tea either. Bit opulent. Um, American dollars? <laughs> I don't know the answer to that, yeah, Veronica. Because well, they'd be buying them in euro anyway. That's, uh, um, was it? it was actually an American report, so I'm going to say yeah, American dollars. American dollars. That is um, idios, hideous. Amazing, right? I wonder if you'll see that one in your travels. Not only that, but palm trees in Rome. Like, you know. <laughs> Forecourt is amazing. It's pretty amazing. A lot of marble. If you're not watching, it's it's opulent beyond belief. Yeah, check the video. You really need to check the video. If you're not checking the video and seeing what Me- Megan sits in front of every episode, she goes with such, such trouble to come up with these. I these love images. it. I find it, it just frees my brain for a few minutes while I go and find something really interesting that I wouldn't otherwise. Yeah, I don't get on TikTok or anything. Yeah, just, anyway, she let's get scroll. on with this. Let's get Alrighty. to some questions. Vanessa uh, emailed us and she said, our biggest challenge is that we can't afford to buy a property that we want to live in. So it's, you know, the non-negotiable needs that they've got and the amount that they can borrow. Now she says we're older and one of us is self-employed, so the borrowing capacity is not quite enough. And it is very difficult, she says, to get advice about what other, what other options she might have. So Veronica, I, I think there are some options for them here. Yeah, there are. I mean, we have quite a few of our students, actually, they're in the same 
boat. It's not just first first time buyers that we have who who, who listen in, is it? You know, sometimes exactly. they're new to Australia. Maybe they're starting again. It, it lots of different um, demographics. Yeah, sometimes they um, got an inheritance. You know, late a little later in life. So for mature buyers who haven't got the budget for their needs, though, in the area in which they've established their lives, see that's the thing. You know, a first home buyer might be a little who's younger might be a little bit more flexible in where they're prepared to move to and the, and, the, and the change of life. But when once your kids are established, your lives are established. You know, that's a bit. Um, I guess it's a bit more painful um, changing location. And you hit on it there. Uh, for a lot of people who have got children, once you're in that schooling system, you don't either want to move out of the catchment area if it's a public school, or you want to be within a reasonable commute, um, regardless of whether it's a, a, a public school or private school. And so your community does become quite entwined with the schooling system once you've got children. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly under those circumstances, it might be that rent vesting is a better option. And that is where you are stay renting where you want to live and you buy an investment somewhere else where you can afford a good a good property. It might even be in the same area, just smaller than what you need. Um, or it might be a totally different area. You don't have to buy it in that area. And sometimes also it might be worth buying a smaller place that you could move into when the kids fly the coop, you know, so that's a, an option to look at there. I really like that one because we're working with a client at the moment in our buyer's agency business in Brisbane who is in that exact boat. So they've come to us and they've said, look, this is our budget. It is. It is defined. It is set. We cannot do anything outside that budget. We have gone to the mortgage broker. We've done all the right things around that. So well done to them. They've looked at all, explored all of their opportunities. One is self-employed. The other one is um, full-time parent. So there's not a lot of opportunity to expand their income at this point in time because we talk about that's another option is to actually expand your income or increase your income. And and their situation is that there will be an increase in income in a number of years' time, but in the interim period, their children are in one of the really highly managed catchment areas of a, a Brisbane school that's very sought after. And if they move outside that catchment, they can no longer attend that school. So with some state schools, once you're in, you can stay. But with this particular one, you actually have to remain within the catchment for the duration of your schooling. It's because so many people were renting for a little while and then moving back out. So they they actually stopped that. And then it's an inner inner Brisbane school, very very well sought after for a state school. So we, we actually did talk to them about this very scenario uh, they've only got two years left of their youngest. So when they looked at um, whether they should buy a home to live in, what they needed to um, to purchase within that catchment would have got them a two-bedroom unit. So their budget would only get them a two-bedroom unit. That actually doesn't satisfy their four-person family with teenage kids and study requirements and and so forth. So um, we, we did look at this rent vesting option and what they decided was to think about and put lots of options on the table, was to think about buying that place that they will go to when the kids have finished school. And it will be outside the catchment. They have a greater uh, availability of, of opportunities um, and prices are a, a little more, more moderate in the areas that they'd like to live in when they haven't got to live where they've got to live at the moment. And it has honestly, it's just opened up their minds 
to what life will look like in two years instead of going, we have to do something to live in now. No, we're going to do something that will rent for a little period of time to somebody else. We'll continue renting in the area that we have to rent in. But here we have our base that we're going to go to when the children are off to university. I had a conversation with some people today who uh, they've been living in an apartment. They've bought the apartment and they've got one toddler and they're like now looking at buying the family home in suburbia and, I'm like, and you know, they've got some challenges in terms of, you know, what they can afford, where they can afford it, all the normal things. So even upgraders have the same problems that first home buyers do in that regard. Um, and, and I said, so what are you going to do with the apartment? Oh, no, we're going to keep that. I said, okay, tell me about that. And um, so their, their argument there is that they love living there so much that in – you know, 18 years or 20 years or whatever, when their their toddler who will be growing up and hopefully moving out of home, then they want to move back into the very same apartment. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so it's slightly, uh, a slightly different way of viewing it. But you know, it's nice to know where you're going to go at a certain time. So, I, but isn't so that I, the beauty of talking to people? Is you can go, well, that's what I'd like to do. All right, well, let's go around the, the grounds and see what your opportunities and options are, and where do they land after talking to you. Well, what I have said to them, unfortunately, is that, yes, that might be a wonderful way to look at the world and think, I, I know where I'm going to be in 20 years' time, but you've got the next 20 years and you've got to be very happy with what you're living in then and where you're living. And if that means that you're going to be compromising too much on the next 20 years, just so that in 20 years' time you can move back here, I'd be selling it and contributing to a better budget for, for an upgrade home. So if they kept it, it would have a, a, adjusted what they could borrow to purchase their now yeah. home yeah. quite quite a hamst- quite hamstrung actually and so but but listen we're going to take them through the where to buy process so you know we do that we consult with our clients and and we call it a getting starter session but it's basically the where to buy process so if you find yourself in the same situation you're trying to work out your options we have a 39 dollar tutorial you can do and that's that takes you through that whole exercise so that's a very very useful thing to do to look at really what your options are yeah, it's very powerful because it makes you think about, um, you know, we talk about the three Ps and you know, position, property and price. And usually one of those things is set in stone, whether that's the price that you can pay based on your borrowing capacity or it's the, the position that you need to be in because of schooling or whatever the case may be. You have to be in a particular pocket or, or location um, or it's the property attributes. You you have to have a certain number of things, whether it's bedrooms or or car parking, you know, if you're in an apartment and you have two cars and, and uh, you, you know, that's non-negotiable to you or a motorbike, whatever the case may be, um, of those three things, usually one or two of them are, you know, pretty set in stone and the other one is a thing you've got to be incredibly flexible about. So it's a very, very powerful process. But Veronica, I was also thinking, remember we interviewed Hung Choi um, in episode 118 and this is when, it, you know, we're talking about the price now of those three P things. Price is often set by your borrowing capacity. Um, and that's a conversation you have to have with a mortgage broker. You can't do an online calculator to work out how much you can borrow because usually it's vastly different to what the reality is. Um, and Hong certainly was quite different in how he approached some of these things. And there are many mortgage brokers who are just, you know, you've got to have your 20% and you if you're not a... PAYG employee with um, a, a good six months in your job, they don't really know what to do with you. But there are some mortgage brokers who are really good at understanding people who are self-employed or a bit out of the box, or maybe they're paid a base and a commission, or you know, there are different ways that people are paid now. And and some mortgage brokers 
get that and know how to apply the financial institution's different lending policies and look at them and and work with what you've got to find opportunities that might work for you. Um, and some people just can't. They're, they're a bit more sort of straight down the line, a bit boxed. And certainly if you go directly to a bank, you're going to find that they, they're going to want you to fit in their box and there's not a lot of wiggle room if you're a bit outside the box. Yeah, so I think, you know, and that was a very interesting interview with Hong as well because it was like, oh, wow. So some people who really just feel like banks don't love them because they're self-employed could actually have a very different experience if they're working with a broker who gets that and understands which banks uh, are going to view, you know, different information from you differently and which ones are going to, f- um, you know, treat it differently and then you have a better, potentially a better um uh, borrowing capacity. So it's worthwhile exploring that. Uh, you might not go down that path, but it's worthwhile understanding what your options Absolutely. are. Absolutely. And it just, it makes me think also, sorry, we're tr- going down one path and we've got all all these other questions to get to, but it's it's really quite relevant because if you're buying a property to live in, you may have a vastly different borrowing capacity than if you're buying a property to rent fest in so you're not going to necessarily have the same borrowing capacity. So it's really important to go through that whole process with a broker and say, right, well, if I live in it, what what does it look like? If I rent it out for a period of time, what does that look like? And also, if you are thinking about buying an investment property and perhaps buying a home down the track, make sure you you, you put that on the table so that you can be told about, all right, well, here's the potential impacts and if you do this, this might be the impact on your borrow, your borrowing capacity down the track. It's good to have that big holistic kind of look at what your life might look like. Because if you just go walk in there and go, I'm buying an investment property and I, you know, this is what I, I think I want to pay, and they approve you to, for that without you having a conversation about what you might do in a couple of years, it might be a really bad decision. It might actually really shackle you to that that bottom ladder, bottom rung on the ladder for a lot longer than if you'd had a bigger conversation around, well, if I buy this now and then I want to do that, what's the impact of that? Am I better off doing it this way or that way? Now, these conversations you can have and throw ideas around with people that are well-versed in in, in thinking outside the box and going, oh, well, maybe if you did it this way, you, you it may get you along that stepping stone, along that ladder in a faster way or a, or an easier pathway. And that's um, one of the big issues there is is tax implications, and that's why it's really important to get good advice from your broker, but also potentially from an accountant as well. So, you know, we talk about in step one of the PACE system, you know, your first home buyer guy, we've got 10 steps of, and taking you through those steps in order. How important is that? Step one is getting your advisors lined up correctly so that you <laughs> don't end up making a mistake by assuming some things, doing them, then realizing too late you could have done it a different way and it cost yourself a lot less money. All right, next question. Let's go on to Glenn, who is a mortgage broker. So he's a a regionally based mortgage mortgage broker and he's right at the starting point of his property investment journey with his wife. They're willing to treat this as a commercial transaction, well done, whereby we don't have any hang up on needing to buy locally. So that then opens up a huge amount of markets to potentially buy in. Pretty daunting in the first place and and good on you for thinking like that. So great, the, the, the country is your oyster, but it is also daunting when you're buying outside an area that you're really comfortable with. Um, they see the value in having a strong team behind us and, and buyer's agent seems like a logical addition, but some of your content, as in our content, 
makes me think twice about who I should go with because a lot of the buyer's agents out there may not be as experienced as they may suggest. And that is a great question. And is an excellent question. And it is sadly the truth. And that's why we keep banging on about it. (laughs) So I guess we want to just give you a quick rundown of what to look for in in a buyer's agent. We have actually discussed this in previous episodes, but I think you know, I could sum it up into three things, really. Um, one is not fly in, fly out. And what that means is there are two main types of buyer's agents. There's the investor specialist who buys a agnostic to location and buys it all around the country based on data. And there's a danger with that because data only gets you so far. Um, so if they purely rely on data and buy in areas that they're not familiar with, I wouldn't go near them. Uh, if they are a local specialist, however, the problem with the local specialist is that they can't necessarily recommend, um, uh, well, they can't necessarily recommend on other areas and they can't say, oh, well, um, you know, y- your budget will only buy your B grade property here, but if you look at, you know, some other areas, you can buy an A grade because that basically that's the limitation of using a local specialist, which is a real problem in our industry in a way that you've got what two extremes and no middle ground. So it does mean that you will have to do some work yourself to decide on a location, right? And because it may mean engaging two different individuals who have the ability to open your mind up to all the options, which is perhaps one of those organisations that looks at a lot of different locations that isn't just locally based. But then the purchase may be um, more more accurate or better serviced by a local area specialist once you decide on the location. So it might actually, might actually be a two-step process there. Yes, exactly right. Now, so obviously the first step is a property strategist. Now, the problem with a property strategist is that quite often they are tied to um, selling buyers' agent services. And so if you're getting sold a property plan that sort of maps out the next 20 years and all the properties you're going to buy and all the rest of it that unfortunately um not I don't love them I read a few of them and um you know they they there's a whole bunch of assumptions in them often that that aren't necessarily that reliable so that is a bit dangerous but somebody that can advise you on you know where are good solid areas to invest with good fundamentals one of the ways around this, and, and I will also say, if I just in case I forget, that experience is incredibly important, right? And honestly, I look, my preference is look for someone that at least they work within a business that their principal's got 10 years experience um, and them individually ideally would have five plus years experience. Well, they're part of a team. You know, some, sometimes, um, you know, for example, in our buyer's agency, we, we work as a team. So it's not individual buyer's agents that see it through from start to finish. It's a team of people with different areas of expertise. One's extraordinarily good at research. One's incredibly good at sourcing off markets. Another one is awesome at negotiations and auctions. So when you pull all of those skills together, then the collective experience, as long as the person leading there has got the depth of experience at 10 plus years, as you say, um, then you you can come across. Because the thing about property is, it takes so many years to come across all of the different things that can go wrong to know where to go to when there is a red flag that is raised or a question that's raised that you don't know the answer to. You and I still sometimes go, geez, we came across this the other day. I haven't had it before. You know, we've got 40 plus years doing this and we're still coming across situations that we haven't had before. 
But the benefit that we have for our clients is that we can turn around and go, all right, well, I've had something similar before. I'm going to go back to that person because as a starting point, I know they've got an idea about this and they can direct me to the right people who can really unpack this and tell me if it's a risk or or, or not a risk. But at least, you know, we, we the antenna goes up and we know who to go to. And that's the thing. It's do you know what to do next? And so... I don't sure if I've mentioned this on this podcast before, but I've got a mentoring program for new buyers agents. So I, I help coach these people, some of them, only a handful actually. <laughs> well, you've enough. <laughs> you're as picky with them as they are going to be with you. But, you know, you've got to be pretty motivated to get into a program with Veronica because she doesn't take it lightly. I don't mince words. So, but the point being that if you don't know what to do next, right? You've got to work within a team where you've got someone to go to that will help you tease out what the options are. And so that's where experience is so important, as Megan was talking about then. If the individual hasn't got the five plus years experience, at least they're working within a team where cumulatively there's a lot of that experience that they can draw upon rather than being an individual working in a very individualist business where it's, you know, every it's each to their own and, and dog eat dog. And so... A lot of places talk about team, but you've got to sort of want to know what the evidence of how they get the benefit of that experience that's also within their team. So it's a really important um, part of it. One of the things that, interestingly enough, um, you know, I started Suburb Help with with Kent and um, we haven't really done too much with that. There is a website there and people can go through and work out, you know, get some data and sort of work out some shortlist some areas and then what my big thing there is that they need to then go to a, a local specialist as we just talked about but in a way what I'm even suggesting some people will look at these days is to talk to they think okay well I could probably afford maybe I can afford something in Newcastle maybe I can afford something in in Brisbane maybe I can afford something in Adelaide for argument's sake well then go and talk to a really good buyers agent in each of those locations and ask them to tell you what does my budget buy in that area? Can I buy an A-grade asset for an investment in that area? And t- give me some examples of the types of property that you think that I'd, I'd be looking at with that budget. And, and then a good make- experienced buyer's agent will do that. They will share that information. Now, they might not give you the address that's subject to the, the clients, okay, around that sort of stuff. But they will actually say, yep, we've bought this, we've bought this, we've bought that. Um, and, and it will give you a really good idea of how they assess properties as well. Because what what's buyers agent might not give their in, you know, their entire intellectual property, um, they, they can talk to you about the basics of how they assess a, an investment grade property. So I would, that is something that I'm starting to recommend people do. And, and I think that that's a way to solve the problem of the property strategists really trying to sell you on a system. And then potentially into a system where you've got buyers agents that aren't local specialists buying property in areas that they're not familiar with, or going to a local specialist, but then not understanding that there might there may be better areas for you to consider. And so if you sort of go to three solid areas with with fundamentals for different reasons, and then you can make your own mind up from that. And also it's a is a personal relationship. When you're working with a buyer's agent, you know, understanding you can trust the guidance that they're gonna give you and their processes, and they can actually easily articulate those processes and show you what they do. As Megan says, without giving you the secret sauce, you still want to know evidence that actually what they're going to do for you. Um, And so I think that that's that's a good workaround. Yep. All right, let's move on to Carl. Yep, Carl, I think. 
Very short question. Yeah. How do I find the sale price of recently sold properties that are not disclosed? Simple. Ask, Ask the agents. agents. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I mean, this is about being nice to agents as well and just asking. They'll tell you if they can't, but quite often they'll just tell you if you ask them. Um, sometimes I flick text messages and yes, sure, they might know me, but there's plenty of times I'm flicking a text message to an agent that does not know me and they still tell me most of the time, not all the time. There's very few instances where maybe a buyer has said or a seller has said, you know, I don't want you to disclose this. Um, but in a lot of instances, if you, if you are giving them something like, oh, I went through this property the other day, saw it sold for X dollars, just wondering what you know, what you sold that one for, that that exchange of information can be quite helpful in, in, in the conversation. So if you if you know something that isn't advertised, you can share it with an agent to get some information out of them that they might might not otherwise be as readily happily to happy to share. Yeah. And there's also a little on there's a little hack with sold online sold prices. So when you're searching, say in domain or on realestate.com.au and you're going into the sold properties tabs, and you can you can search in price ranges. If you keep narrowing down those price ranges, you can come pretty close to a very good guesstimate because in the back end they've got the price. So it'll keep popping up as price not disclosed until it's outside the range. So there's a, a little hack for you. So it it's not hundred percent reliable, but it'll give you a better idea than just give you a close you know, range having a, a wild guess. Yeah. Now, Neil asked, this is our first property and we're a bit clueless on what to ask. Good on you. Where, uh, where to look and how to kick things off, really. So, really, Neil wants to start from step one in the 10-step process. He wants to do your first home buyer guide. He does. We've got an okay deposit. Well done. That is a very big achievement. And now looking just to get an A or a B-grade asset to kick off the property journey. Congratulations. Absolutely. It is a process, right? So he's obviously in the right place. And I actually think Neil might be a student now. I better just double check. Um, so if that's you, Neil, good on you. If you're not, you should join. Um, it's, it is a process. There is a lot to learn so that you'll be confident um, that you have bought an A, B grade asset. And certainly we did a whole episode on this in episode 40 on how to identify A, B, and C grade property. So highly recommend anybody who hasn't listened to episode 40 to go back there. It's a good foundational episode. Um, the other thing too that we have just added to your first home buyer guide is weekly Q&A sessions. So for people who have purchased the course and doing the course, once they actually start their property journey and their property searching in earnest, they can opt to take advantage of those weekly sessions and we run them on a Wednesday at lunchtime. So come and pick not, our brains. Come and pick our brains and you can we, you can even give us the links during those sessions and we'll look them up. We won't give it away just in case you can pen it as you also in the group. <laughs> and obviously we can't share things about individual properties um, that, that isn't just available online. So we can't give an opinion about whether a property is something you should buy. We don't know your unique circumstances, but there's a lot of information that we can probably help you with. So anyway. Yeah. So that's just something that, you know, we, we can be on hand to say, well, actually, I'm not sure that's A grade or B grade because of this, 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 and this. And we can pick up, because we're so finely tuned on this stuff, we can pick up a lot of things online. Uh, right. On the next question, you've been good at asking the question, so I'll give it to you again. <laughs> Alison. Alison asks, my biggest challenge is not having enough savings for a deposit. That is 
such a common thing and really hard to work through. I'm a 48-year-old single mum with one child and I'm paying high rent, about $500 a week. What are your thoughts on the government shared equity scheme? As that may be an option for me as a first home buyer and a 2% deposit is doable. So this is a real passion for both of us actually to help more women into their own homes. We've got a couple of little projects in the wings that we want to um, space. Yeah, do more on as as we um, move, you know, forward. This is a great question. Um, and obviously the answer for any individual needs to take into account their personal situation, okay? Um, and so the, obviously we can't give Alison specific information or advice on her situation um, because we don't know enough about her situation. But we have recorded a podcast where we do discuss the pros and cons of the share own, the shared ownership concept, as in the government shared ownership concept. That's in episode 77. So, um, and highly recommend anybody who's thinking about taking up um, even the 5% scheme, but also any of the shared, um, the co-ownership schemes that some of the, the Victorian governments come up with one, um, and obviously and there the are federal some other scheme. organisations that are, are looking to do a little bit more yes. in that space as well. We've yeah. spoken to different uh, companies that are in that space. Um, so very, very important to get very good advice around those if you do go down that track. track. It is certainly an option, um, but we say eyes wide open, understand, you know, if you only own 2% of a property and prices go down, you've got to make sure that you've got a really good asset. Because uh, you don't want to be in a position where you owe more than what the property is worth. Most important thing, assuming that you can afford repayments, again, we don't know your personal situation, but the most important thing is that you can, you, you buy the best place that you probably can, the best property that you possibly can. And by this, what I mean is, especially since the deposit is so small, if it goes down in value, you end up in a negative equity position. That is, you owe more than what the property is worth. Whereas if you've got a 20% deposit, if you've got a little fluctuation in value, you've got a little bit more wiggle room um, and the bank isn't potentially knocking at your door to, to say, well, I, I, I don't know that we like this security anymore. Yeah. yeah. Now, obviously, with the if you do take advantage of the, share, the government shared ownership, that's not such an issue in itself. But the other thing that you need to be thinking about with buying the best possible home you can is the one that suits your needs for the longest period of time. Because where quite often people have this sort of short-term focus, trying to just get onto the ladder, and they're not really thinking, okay, will this really serve me for another 10 years? You know, will this be the right property for me? Um, I mean, five years is the minimum we recommend you consider, but look, I think... There's a lot of costs going in, there's a lot of costs going out if you're going if you, if it doesn't suit you for a longer period of time. That's the thing, particularly when you're only looking at a 2% deposit, you know, the cost to buy... You know, obviously you're going to be saving some stamp duty and all the rest of it by taking advantage of various um, first-home buyer opportunities depending on, you know, the price points, et cetera, et cetera. The other thing too is be very wary of any shared ownership scheme that, that insists you buy brand new. Yes. Any scheme that insists you yeah, buy brand new. Because there is huge risk. It's, yeah, and, and often the prices are inflated and, and often they're in areas where there's a lot of the same whether that's an off-the-plan apartment or a house and land package, where you've got a lot of things that are the same. If you go back to that episode on ABC-grade properties, um, it scarcity is one of those things that is a driver for um, potential for capital growth. So if everything's the same, it's not really very scarce. 
uh, very, very important that you select that asset, not based on just purely on the incentives that are going to be offered if you do go down the brand new path. Yeah. And look, taking on a mortgage debt for the first time is always daunting, especially when you're doing it on your own. So obviously key is your budgeting and your buffers and making sure that your mortgage advisor or your broker is giving you good guidance there. So if you don't feel like you're getting good guidance, go and find one that is going to guide you. And there's very there's various ones. You and I come across some um, some brokers who are unbelievable at working with women who have either gone through life on their own or have become suddenly single through for diff- different circumstances. And, and sometimes you're on the ramp up to building your life and sometimes you're just having to completely rejig your life. You and I have been through that circumstance where you go from, you know, a, a marriage and joint assets to to now going, all right, well, I've got to rebuild this. And there are some people out there and we talked to Nicola McDougall in a recent episode who who had some great ideas around women who are moving through and, and how property can be an enabler to financial freedom and, and setting yourself up. So it's one step at a time is is very key to managing what can be quite overwhelming, um, particularly when you haven't got someone who you can bounce these sorts of things off and feel like you're you're taking that risk, you're taking that big step together. Um, but making sure you're getting the right advice from the right professionals can help you feel like you have got that sounding board around you. Yeah, very important. And of course, we're here to help when you're ready as well. So that's it for this Q&A episode. Keep the questions coming. We can't wait to do the next one. In this episode, we've covered a very small part of our 10-step online course for first-time buyers. If you would like to learn more about the process and how to buy without making a mistake, then head over to our website, www.homebuyeracademy.com.au. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss an episode. And if you like what you've heard today, please give us an iTunes review. Five stars would be wonderful. It will help others find us as well. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found this really useful. And if you have, please share the love with others who you know are in the same boat. We'll be back next week with some more priceless stuff.